Talking history. This is News Talk. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And out of that silence came thousands of voices. The strategy of the white man has always been divide and conquer. As one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Uh, Good evening and welcome. We're talking history on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Gagan. In tonight's show, exploring the records in the National Archives and what they reveal about our history, the trials and triumphs of house building at Adair Manor in County Limerick, and to end the show, a history of the EU and the people who made it. Last week, we looked at the links between Ireland, slavery and the Caribbean, and we found out how Irish enslavers profited across all of the major European slave economies. And if you want to listen back to this or to any of our old shows, just go to the News Talk app powered by Go Loud, our website newstalk.com or wherever you download your podcasts. But to begin tonight's show I'm delighted to be joined by Orla McBride the Director of the National Archives who is always finding new and dynamic ways to present the precious records of the state in a form that captures the public imagination and tonight's interview is inspired by a brilliant new documentary that is playing right as we speak on RTE1 called The Record Show presented by Katie Hannon. But don't Move the dial, don't switch over. Uh, it's almost over, so you can watch it back on the RTE player. Uh, the second episode is going to air next Sunday at 6.30 p.m. But Orla, it's a brilliant idea because uh, Katie is looking at, going through, I suppose, the shelves of the National Archives, finding previously unlooked at documents and then going around the country to tell the stories of those documents. Yes, Patrick, and I think that's the most important thing that when people think of the National Archives or they think of records that are held in the National Archives, they think they're dusty, fusty records that are only really um, for academics or researchers. And actually in the National Archives, we have about 50 million records and every single one of those records is a policy record, it's a departmental record, it came from a government department, but it's the start of a story that affects somebody's life. So this new uh, documentary that we've made with RTE, The Record Show, it shows Katie coming into to the National Archives, working with us, working with our staff, looking at different um, records that are in the National Archives and then taking that record and bringing it out to where there is a story that emanates from it. So it could be anything like in the 1930s after the establishment of the of the Irish state, there was a huge social housing uh, programme following the 1926 census. Um, they realised that actually we probably had the the, the greatest slums in Europe and there was a political decision made to actually embark on quite a significant and very progressive social housing um, infrastructural programme across the country. So we have records that tell those stories but then how did they affect the lives of people across the country in the 1930s? So you take a, a, a memo that might have been a government record that made the decision to allocate X amount of money to social housing and then in the record show Katie Hannan goes down to Clonic to one of the most progressive um, social housing projects in Clonakilty and speaks to people who were born and brought up in houses with toilets, in houses with a bath, in houses that had a parlour, in houses that had a front garden and a back garden. And those were new concepts in the Ireland that was emerging after the foundation of the state. So the record show really is about animating those records and bringing them to life and showing you know the impact that they that the records that are held in the national archives have on the lives of ordinary people so for example um in the 1930s 40s and 50s we had a very significant um uh, train network developed all over the country i come from donegal and in donegal you could go anywhere on a train my grandmother was a jubilee nurse she came to donegal in the 1930s she travelled up from dublin on a train there are no trains now in donegal because in the 1950s, a decision was then made towards the end of the 50s and 60s that actually automobiles were the future. The future was in the automobile um, and all of the, 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 the rail network in Donegal was, was, was taken up. So decisions that were made at government level and those records are held in the National Archives. This show was about then taking the record and going out around the country and actually exploring the records through the lives of ordinary people and decisions that were made by government and how they affected people in their day-to-day lives. 
and it shows what wonderful records you do have in the National Archives, but also how there are so many different stories that we can tell about our country and about what society was like and how people live their lives that sometimes when we think of official archive records, we do think it purely in terms of politics and, you know, boring decisions but actually these are the human effects but it's also about what we can learn about well really about life all across the island Absolutely and there's one very interesting um, section in the documentary which explores the lives of women Um, and in 1936 De Valeria was uh, developing the 1937 um, constitution and a group of women from across the country um, were lobbying De Valera to ensure that the place of women and the position of women in Irish society would be um, progressed within this new constitution. But they were women from all across the country. So you might have thought it might have been, you know, the unions and the labour movement and women that were more active and activists in Dublin who had maybe already been involved in the revolutionary years. No, not at all. It, absolutely, it was those women. But it was the ICA, Irish Country Women's Association. It was the Legion of Mary. It was the Girls' Friendly Society. So across the country, you had women coming together from very, very, it wasn't just the liberal left, from very, very different aspects of Irish life, coming together um, because they were politically unified in terms of the place of women in in Irish um, society and there's a letter that they as a group wrote they were called the Joint Committee of Women's Societies and Social Workers and they didn't go for catchy little titles in those days Um, but these women wrote to De Valera beseeching him to meet with them and they said in in, in this document that we have in the National Archives it says look the state of women in Ireland in 1936 has deteriorated significantly from the place of women uh, prior to under British rule. Like That's extraordinary. And then we could see what happened thereafter. We had the marriage bar, etc. So actually the, pl- the position of women further deteriorated over the next number of years. So those are women from country women to religious women to labour movement women all coming together and through the, nas- the records in the National Archives, you can tell their story of what it, looked, what it was to be a woman in Ireland in the 1930s. And some of the obstacles as well, because one of the documents shows how uh, it was suggesting that women w- weren't going to be suitable as post postmen or customs officers or, or so foresters. on. Or foresters. Or foresters, yeah. Or yes, postmen, customs um, and foresters. Customs because, you know, there may be alcohol that they may have to confiscate as part of their work and you couldn't have women doing that. Uh, foresters, because obviously women, you know, they didn't feel that they were. So so they actually identified different roles that women were not suitable for. Um, and then really the, the marriage bar came into effect thereafter. Um, so a woman's place was absolutely in the home. So you're really getting an insight into the development of modern Ireland through these stories. It also has the impact of Elvis's dancing on on our society. Uh, the first Irish pioneers at Silicon Valley, Mary Robinson's landmark trip to Somalia. Like it's it's all kinds of 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 stories about the making of modern Ireland, really from the foundation of the state right up to recent times. Yes, and um, a lot of the records that we looked at, um, because it was the you know the staff of the National Archives that identified records and then we sat down with the production company and began to really, you know, map out um, the different themes. But uh, Elvis's abdominal dancing, yes. So uh, there are extraordinary files in the Taoiseach's department where you have ordinary people from all over Ireland writing to complain. And I, I can tell you there, there wasn't just one or two letters in relation to Elvis's abdominal dancing. So, yeah, I mean, they're quite extraordinary, really. Um, and, and, and funny, but they also tell, you know, tell, really speak to what Ireland looked like um, all through those those decades following um, following independence. And it's, a, you know, just looking at them and, and seeing even the letters that people were writing to whoever the Taoiseach of the day was, complaining about something or, or beseeching him or, or him always um, to do something. It very much... It, they speak to the anxieties, um, the frustrations um, and the fear, you know, the fear, the genuine fears that people had as they navigated their way through um, an emerging kind of modern Ireland that was beginning to be shaped and framed um, in those uh, in those decades following independence. The decade of centenaries is drawing to a conclusion with Ireland's entry to the League of Nations. And I think the National Archives has had a very good decade of centenaries and uh, the centrepiece of your 
commemorative programme now is is this major exhibition about Ireland joining the league and it's it's travelling around the world I think it's in Geneva at the moment it's going to New York it's it's an incredible story of Irish diplomacy but also about Ireland taking her place among the nations of the world Yes and it is as you say in Geneva at the moment and will travel to the UN building in New York in November but it was in the at the Ploughing Championships and that for us really was a very important um you know, I always think the ploughing championships are like a barometer, really, in terms of you know the interests of 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 the st- of the people, the citizens, um, and it went down to the ploughing championships, and it was so well received, and people came out of it going. I never thought about that. I didn't know anything about Ireland joining the League of Nations. What was the League of Nations? Is that, is that the UN? You know, so so we made the decision, um, and it was part of the overall decade of centenaries final chapter in a way that the expert advisory group had said Ireland joining the League of Nations will be that final moment and the final reveal really as part of the decade and all of the records relating to Ireland joining the League of Nations are in the National Archives. What was the League of Nations? Well it was a grouping of uh, countries that came together following uh, the First World War but for Ireland it was a key moment in terms of, as you say, our our international diplomacy. We were just one year in existence as a a free state. And we made the decision. I mean, ambitious, courageous, confident new state saying we want to take our place amongst the nations of the world. And they sent a delegation from Dublin to Geneva. Most of them had never been out of Ireland before. And they travelled and even looking at the records that we have, because we've everything from, you know, the ticket stubs and uh, their expenses and where they stayed. And I can tell you they were not staying in four star hotels. They hardly had money to survive in Geneva. The new state was was poor. But they made the decision that actually being an equal amongst the nations of the world was was so important for this new Irish state. But it also set in, in train many of those principles and core core beliefs that, that still guide us as a nation. So, you know, everything around peacekeeping and international um, human rights. Uh, like there are records and records and records in the in the um, League of Nations archives and in, in the records that we hold about um, concerns around human trafficking and how the League was, was, was addressing issues like that. Ultimately, the League of Nations um, was not a success in the end, um, due in part to the Second World War. Um, and then it, it petered out and then we have the establishment of the UN. But for us, as a, as a young nation, in 1923, it was a bold, ambitious step to actually say, here we are too, little Ireland, trying to assert ourselves, trying to, 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 to you know, articulate what it was to be um, a new state in 1923. And we felt that really the stories behind it, the human stories of, you know, the men who went there, their wives, uh, what it was like to live in Geneva in the 1920s and the 1930s, those are fantastic. Even, you know, the invoices or the receipts from the hotels where they'd host their St. Patrick's Day receptions. They weren't the lavish receptions that we might be familiar with nowadays. You know, it was sherry and, and bonbons. But um, nonetheless, they had sherry and bonbons in a hotel or in a... In, and and we have all of those receipts now. So the exhibition um, will, will surprise people and I think people will be really genuinely interested in it. So, um, and then we have a book on it, um, beautiful y- book. Yes, a beautiful book on an equal footing with all Ireland at the League of Nations by uh, John Gibney, Michael Kennedy and Zoe Reid. And beautiful, absolutely beautiful documents being reproduced there and cartoons and images and like it really is a top quality production with the documents you can look at them in your hand and it's available free on the Royal Irish Academy um, website so I would um, encourage everyone to to um, to get a copy of it or download it um, but I think people will as I say be genuinely surprised at what's in there in terms of, of, of interest to people just you know all of us and of course Britain mustn't have been happy when Ireland thus straight after becoming a free state and straight after the treaty is now almost like on an equal footing in this in this new League of Nations and that was a very that was a key moment when the Anglo-Irish Treaty of 1921 was accepted as an international 
treaty by the League of Nations. And that's what then, I suppose, set us on this journey, but also gave us that equal footing um, with all, which is the the title of both the book and the exhibition. Uh, So no, the British were not happy. um, But actually, you know, they moved on and we moved on and and so we've moved. And so we've moved. Uh, It's History Month in the schools and earlier in the week I was at Loretta Dawkey in Dublin uh, and I was showing them the, I was showing the students third, fourth, fifth and sixth class the 1911 census which of course has been digitised and you're able to look up any family name or a street and a county and it's it's incredible and they went home then and they were, you know, asking their family, you know, where do we live or what, you know, what was our our name back then and and doing these searches and I think people are very excited about uh, the 1926 census which is uh, going to be uh, released well in in three years time and we're as busy we're as busy Patrick up in the National Archives getting the 1926 um, census ready for um, publication and uh, making it available online in April uh, 2026 so the the census, the 1926 census is the property of the CSO um, and they've transferred it to the National Archives and we're working with it. But there is legislation, there is a law that says we can't release it uh, or it cannot be released until it's 100 years old. So that's why we, we are working to the uh, release date of the 18th of April 2026, which marks 100 years since that census was taken in April, on the 18th of April 1926. And it, it the population at the time in Ireland was 2,971,000 thousand people, of which 49% were female and 51% were were male, um, of which 92.6% Catholic. This is the first census of the Irish Free State, so it's a very significant one for us. Um, It's very significant in that people could fill it out in English and people could fill it out in Irish. So 18.3% of the population could speak um, Irish in 1926. And it was, we're going through it at the moment, um, Start you know, cataloguing it and the conservation work has started because a lot of these, um, none of these books have been opened in 100 years. So we're the first people to touch them, to feel them, to open them, to see the names of all the people um, across the country in 1926. I mean, it is actually... um, quite a, an emotional journey that we're going on because we know that none of the boxes have been opened in a hundred years um and uh and and to go in and to, to and and to see a lot of people um because it was that first census they actually filled it in in Irish even if they weren't really Irish speakers it was almost a protest um it was almost saying our our language is our language now and we can fill this in in Irish um so so yes we're working on it and it will be released in 2026 and it will stand as a companion to the 1901 and the 1911 census and from our perspective it tells the most extraordinary stories in terms of what Ireland looked like in 1926. You know, how many people were working um, in uh, on farms, how many, you know, what did, what what were the occupations that people had? Um, you know, 51% were involved in agricultural occupations. That's very significant. 4% were fishermen. Um, uh, 14% of people were involved in manufacturing. 7% were domestic servants. And that's a, you know, that's a, t- that's a title. People put down domestic servant as their, as their um, occupation. Um, so, as part of um, our run-up to the 1926 census, we have a major exhibition um, in March to October of next year called The Records of the State. And in a way, we all know because every time there's a census, the CSO come out and say the population of Ireland is this, it looks like this, etc. And then that allows government departments to begin to plan for that population. How many schools do we need? How many hospitals in local areas do we need? You know, what will the pension liability look like for the state in X amount of years? So a census is, in a way, it it tells a genealogical story, as you say, in terms of children looking to see where was their grandfather or their great-grandfather. But actually for the state, it allows the state to plan. So our exhibition next year will take the start of the 1926 census in terms of the population of 2.97 million, as it was in 1926. And how then do you plan for that population over the, the following decades? So the exhibition will look at health, it'll look at education, it'll look at, at you know, the different functions that the state needed to put in place to allow those people to prosper and grow and that, that society to evolve over those those decades following the um, the census. And it's incredible to think the population was just 2.9 million mm-hmm. back in 1926 and it really shows how 
Well, I suppose the difficulties and, and the, the legacy of the famine and the legacy of, of all the, the poverty and you know decades of, of what had been happening and how, how long it took the Irish state to kind of build itself back up. Yes, absolutely. And, and the records tell those stories. So this exhibition really is us taking those records and, 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 and putting people around them, putting human stories around them. And that's what we've attempted to do all through the decade of centenaries. That's what this documentary that's going out um, as we speak on RT1. Um, and and that's what the records of the state exhibition is about saying, that the National Archives is the memory of the state. We hold the official records of the state but behind every one of those records are human stories and decisions that were made by by politicians and by the state that actually affected the lives of people from Donegal down to, 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 to Waterford. So where next? Now that the decade of centenaries is drawing to a close, we have the 1926 uh, census coming in the next three years, uh, that wonderful Records of the State uh, programme from next year. But given that you've always been engaging, trying to find new ways of engaging with the public, capturing the public imagination, uh, what do you see as the next big opportunity or the next big challenge? Well, really, um, between now and 2026, our focus is on creating new and interesting ways that people can engage with the records running up to the census release. So our full, our focus really over the next number of, of, of years will be modern, modern, the modern state was established in 1922. And between 1922 and 1926, what are the social, the political, the cultural stories in those years Um that 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 are held in the records of the National Archives that we we can bring to life. So, for example, um, we're doing a a, a a panel discussion next month in November, um, with um the Irish Film Censors Office. Uh, film censorship was very significant, um, following the foundation of the state. That was one of the first things we'd brought in was the Censorship Act, um, and that impacted. So many different things in terms of the 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 you know the the films that people were watching, the books that people could read, etc. Um, so how do you bring those records to life? Well, if you come into the National Archives, you will see the film censors registers. You'll see something like a film, like for example, um, Gone with the Wind, or Breakfast at Tiffany's, and you can see where they cut cut, cut, and why they cut. So Breakfast at Tiffany's, I think that's a gorgeous film with Audrey. I think just a beautiful film. Well, according to the film censor, it was utterly immoral. It was beyond words. Um, and they, they couldn't allow it. They had to ban it. Uh, it just could, it could not. Irish audiences, Irish people could not be allowed for their own moral, their own, their, they couldn't be allowed to actually even see this film. So you kind of go, oh my God. So there are so many stories in the National Archives and really uh, what we do constantly is try and mine the the, the, the shelves to, to, to look through the records to come up with extraordinary um to, to come up with ways in which we can tell those extraordinary stories. For example, we got a huge set of records from the Department of Finance last year and we have more coming this year. And those are the financial compensation files relating to individuals who were um, hurt or lost their lives um, between the, um, the Easter Rising and the Civil War. Children that were killed, um, who were farmhands helping their father in the farm in, in Cork. So the father or and, and would have sought compensation for the death of that child because, in effect, one of his farmhands was gone. Um, uh, a child that um, children who were out playing and they found a grenade and the child lost its hand in the grenade. So therefore, it was impacted in terms of not being able to work anymore. So how much compensation they got. Like those, those files, they may appear as compensation files, but when you read into them, you go, oh, my God, the stories that are here. You know, a woman who worked in a big house down in Kerry. The house was burned out, obviously, by the IRA. Um, and she lost not only her livelihood, but she lost her home and all her belongings. The, the woman had a nervous breakdown Um applied to the state for compensation. Interestingly, as we're going through them, less women would have received compensation than men um, or, or children. So again, those are really rich records 
And I'm now looking at how we can work with documentary makers that actually you take the record and the story behind the record and then you go further to begin to explore the lives of the people that were that 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 are in those records. Well, I have to say it is always absolutely wonderful whenever we have Orla McBride, the director of the National Archives on the show. She really does bring the records to life. And there is this wonderful uh, two part programme, The Record Show on RTE. You can watch it back on the RTE player. The next episode so it'll be next Sunday at 6.30pm uh, presented by the brilliant Katie Hannon. Well worth watching the record show uh, whether live or uh, on playback. And uh, Orla McBride thank you so much for joining me tonight. Thank you Patrick. We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Welcome back to Talking History. A new book tells the story of the trials and triumphs of house building at Adair Manor in County Limerick. Home of the Quinn family, later Earls of Dunraven, since the mid-17th century, the building underwent a dramatic transformation. And the book covers the cholera epidemic which swept away Masons and the Great Famine which brought the family close to bankruptcy. And it tells how the building works continued to create a house without parallel in Ireland. The book is called The Building of Adair Manor, a family chronicle. It's published in hardback by Wordwell. The author is Anna Maria Hyba. And Anna Maria, you're very welcome to the show tonight. Thank you very much, Patrick. Delighted to be here. Can you tell our listeners maybe first of all about just how unique Adair Manor is, both in terms of its appearance, but also the wonderful records that you were able to study? Yes, I think Adair Manor really is uh, unique in Ireland in a number of respects. Firstly, it is like no other building in the country. It was designed by several architects the family itself took a very prominent role in its its design process. It was um, built over a long, long period of time. We are really lucky in a sense that all the, the family has taken very good care of the records and have generously made them available. So we have them currently in the University of Limerick, which is where I first became familiar with them. They contain diaries. They contain correspondence. All the building records are there. So virtually every nail that was purchased for the house, there is a record of it somewhere. We also have uniquely, I think, records of the men and the women who were involved in the building process. So we have records of masons and carpenters, their duties, how much money they were paid. And that is quite unusual to, to have that level of, of detail relating to a building. So we get not only the family who built it, not only the architects who designed it and their various designs, you know, architectural drawings and such, but we also have accounts that relate to laborers. We have their names. We know exactly the names, who they were. Not only James Connolly, the, the foreman who is kind of familiar to people who know the history of the house very well, but also John Crotty and the, the Maurice Gearin and John O'Neill, the painter, they are all there, which is wonderful to have. Then in terms of the actual building, again, we are looking at a really unique assemblage because the family took over 40 years to build the house. And what they in fact wanted to do was to build a house that looked as if it had taken 800 years to build rather than just 20 or 30. And they achieved this by literally traveling all around England, uh, Ireland, the continent, looking for ideas and inspirations. And the second Earl in particular, who built the kind of main part of the building, became a real scholar of Gothic architecture, not only Gothic revival, but the actual original medieval Gothic architecture. He purchased a number of books on the subject and he was very, very knowledgeable to the point that he actually complained to his son that his main architect who kind of began the building process with him, James Payne, didn't know as much about Gothic architecture as Wyndham. And eventually Wyndham then took a more and more prominent role in the design. He made various trips around England on his own, visiting all the key buildings and brought all that knowledge home and literally created something like an amalgamation of various styles. So as a rule, if you look at a building, say if you go and look at Dromoland Castle, which was designed by the Payne brothers, you can tell that it was designed by the Payne brothers because they had their kind of signature uh, style that they used. If you go to, um, say, Lissadell, again, you can see 
the actual imprint of the architect who designed that. In Adair, when you look at the building, you can't tell who designed it. It is completely unique. Which is incredible. And I was also fascinated by just, I suppose, the, the way the Dunravens very much put their own stamp on it and the idea of it being a calendar house. So you would have uh, 365 leaded windows for the days of the, for, in the year, uh, 52 chimneys for the weeks, seven stone pillars uh, for the days of the week and then four towers for the seasons. So it's really quirky as well. Well, that might be a bit of a myth because there is this popular saying that it is a calendar house. But I, I actually I haven't gone to the effort of actually counting all the windows and chimneys to see if that is the case. However, it is a very quirky building because it is not just stone and, you know, walls and, and windows and that. But if you walk around the building and you look at it, both inside and outside, you see these fantastic sort of gargoyles and grotesques and really fascinating, unusual carvings. A lot of these, again, the family would have collected on their travels. For instance, they went to Cologne Cathedral, uh, which is noted for its kind of, you know, grotesque carvings, and they would copy these and then bring them home and get their carvers to reproduce them. Also inside, they made huge use of heraldry. This was a very kind of a popular thing in the 19th century where it was really important to show your own descent and, of course, from the most noble, imaginable families, ideally from kings and that, but it was also used as a decorative device. Uh, So there's a lot of heraldry. You particularly see this in the gallery uh, with the wonderful stained glass windows, and if you if you are familiar with heraldry, you can actually read the, the family pedigree on the windows. There's lots of unusual carving. A lot of it is inspired by kind of uh, medieval drawings. One of the things that they used as an inspiration was uh, Froissart's Chronicles. This was a kind of a medieval book that had lovely kind of medieval uh, drawings, and they copied these and used them on the various panels in the gallery. So there is this quirkiness and playfulness which makes Adair a really, really intriguing building to to look at and explore. And I think you've also, you were also determined to make sure that the story was told visually and not just with words. Yes, absolutely. It was always... When when you look at it there, you you can see sort of little elements that were popular at the time. But but to get a really good idea of where the thinking came, you know, like behind the house, what 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 the family were trying to do, what inspired them, uh, you have to go and look at illustrations of other buildings of the time. We are very lucky, as I said, that we have their diaries and their letters. We know where they traveled. We know that they actively pursued these visits and they went and looked for ideas. They talked to other owners of, of houses both kind of medieval buildings, original medieval buildings, but also kind of fellow peers who were also building Gothic revival houses. And luckily, again, there is a very good record of these buildings in archives, uh, in museums. And I have been collecting these because, as they say, one picture tells more than a thousand words. And you really cannot get a good enough idea of the inspiration and the influence behind the house if you don't see the houses that they saw and also if you don't see the houses as they saw them because a lot of these buildings have evolved and changed since and I always try to make a point of finding a building, a picture of a building as the family would have seen it and visited it. And I think it adds a lovely dimension to it and it kind of helps create the kind of 19th century atmosphere and the whole kind of picturesque culture that was very popular at the time. And you're an architectural historian and I think you were able to bring that eye and that expertise to the book but you also present it in a way that as someone who doesn't know anything about architectural history or indeed the history of the period will be able to to dive right in and and follow it with great interest. Absolutely that that was my key point uh, from the start. Uh, architectural history can be very technical, there can be a lot of jargon and sort of terminology that's difficult to understand if you're not a specialist. And I did not want this to be like a sort of a textbook on, on, on architectural, you know, building and works and things like that. 
it is a wonderful story because it it knits together not only the the building of the house but also the family story and the two although they kind of run parallel they are also inextricably linked because it's very hard to tell one story without telling the other and because the house took so long to build there are sort of certain elements curious kind of things that that happen that wouldn't normally influence or interfere with building works you know we have as you mentioned earlier on we had the famine uh, we had various wars epidemics shipwrecks we even have an, a volcanic eruption that that interfered with building works and i think for somebody who doesn't know much about architectural history I hope that this book gives you a kind of a soft introduction to it uh, and allows you to enjoy the story of the building of the house. Well, it's a wonderful story of a remarkable building. The book is called The Building of a Dare Manor, a family chronicle. It's published in hardback by Wordwell. The author is Anna Maria Haiba. And Anna Maria, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thank you. We'll be back with more Talking History right after this. Well, welcome back to Talking History. The European Union is the most ambitious and one of the most contentious international organisations ever created. Decisions made in Brussels shape the lives of over 500 million Europeans and its laws and policies resonate around the world. But how has the EU endured over three turbulent decades, marred by crises at home and abroad? Well, a new book offers a rich appraisal of Europe's troubled past and turbulent present, focusing on the people who built the EU as we know it today. The book is called Circle of Stars, A History of the EU and the People Who Made It. It's published in hardback by Yale University Press. The author is Dermot Hodson. And Dermot, you're very welcome to the show tonight. Thanks for having me, Patrick. Can we begin with, I suppose, where you begin with the Maastricht Treaty? Why was that, I suppose, such a, a major turning point or a, or a major landmark? So Maastricht was a turning point, I think, for a few different reasons. So one was really about substance. This was a very ambitious treaty that built a number of important projects on the pre-existing European community. So a plan to have a single currency, the euro, cooperation in the area of justice and home affairs and a common foreign and security policy. So these are really sensitive types of policies. So immediately people took notice of this ambitious plan in the Maastricht Treaty. But I think the turning point was also about process because a number of countries had referenda on the Maastricht Treaty that perhaps wouldn't necessarily have done before. And the message from people was very clear that this new project was very divisive. Also, um, a new group of challenger politicians, I call them right-wing populists in the book, seized upon these referendums to try and whip up popular discontent, not only with regard to the European project, but also globalisation. And the theme of right-wing populism is one that's ever-present in the book. And you see it also when you're talking about Ireland, because, of course, in Ireland here, we, we voted no to the Nice Treaty in 2001, to Lisbon in 2008. And could you maybe remind us of what exactly happened there and why in the first vote was it a no vote? So it's an interesting question, and it's a really important puzzle for the history of the European Union, how this seemingly very pro-European country in which there were high levels of support for European integration and which had tangibly benefited from its membership, voted no to the Nice Treaty in 2001 and the Lisbon Treaty in 2008. And add to this the fact that the main political parties, the largest political parties in Ireland, were all in favour of the treaty, uh, adds to that puzzle. So I think what happened was that consensus about European integration left Ireland's mem membership vulnerable to critiques and criticisms from political outsiders. So we had people like Justin Barrett, who had made his name as an anti-abortion campaigner, led a kind of populist insurgency ab about the European Union and about the Treaty of Nice. Now, people didn't necessarily buy the arguments that these politicians made, but they were confused about what exactly was going on in the treaties. So the famous slogan of the No campaign in 2001 was, if you don't know, vote no. And that's exactly what they did the first time round. In the case of Lisbon in 2008, we see another political actor entering the arena, and that's Declan Ganley. And Declan Ganley was a businessman who had given to Fianna Fáil and found himself suddenly in the limelight as he led a campaign against the Lisbon Treaty with very stark warnings about where that agreement was likely to lead. People again listened, they found themselves quite confused over what that treaty was for, and they pushed back against it. On both occasions, there was a second referendum, and people changed their mind, 
but the damage to the EU's legitimacy was done. And you see something similar, I suppose, with Brexit. Now, I always think that in Ireland we'd probably be... Uh, less reluctant to vote no to a treaty after having observed what has happened and the the chaos that is still continuing to be caused by by Britain leaving the EU. But it's incredible the way when you look at, you know, your book is looking at the history of the EU and the people who made it. And there you see people who helped unmake it in terms of the United Kingdom by by really, I suppose, either giving in to the populism or taking risks and gambles that they probably shouldn't have. Well, I think you're right to see it as a gamble. And I think three prime ministers gambled and lost over Brexit. So the first was David Cameron, who called a referendum in the hope that it would contain Eurosceptic dissent within his own party and see off the electoral threat from the UK Independence Party. He wasn't even sure whether that referendum was really going to take place. When it did happen in 2016, he expected to win it. He proved, I think, a pretty poor campaigner. And he learned the hard way that EU referendums are very unpredictable events. I'll be battling for Britain. If we can get a good deal, I'll take that deal. But I will not take a deal that doesn't meet what we need. I'm, I think it's much more important to get this right than to do anything in a rush. But with goodwill, with hard work, we can get a better deal for Britain. The second prime minister was Theresa May, someone who had reluctantly campaigned for Remain, but now headed up the government that sought to carry out Brexit. And I think Theresa May probably would have chosen a relatively soft Brexit, But she gambled and lost by calling an election. She lost her electoral majority and she found herself even more constrained by Eurosceptics in her party. Over the last few days, people have been asking me what on earth's happening with Brexit. And I can understand that because after all, it's nearly three years since people voted in the referendum for the UK to leave the European Union. And the final Prime Minister, of course, was Boris Johnson. And Boris Johnson had grown up in Brussels. He had been a European correspondent for The Telegraph in Brussels. And I think he was, by instinct, a moderately pro-European individual, right? He was certainly someone who spoke positively about things like the single market. But he gambled by backing the Leave campaign and by being at Star in 2016. And the gamble there was that perhaps Leave might lose the referendum campaign, but Boris Johnson would win his party's leadership. He won his party's leadership and then had to carry out a much harder form of Brexit than he had talked about even in the days and hours after the vote. The withdrawal agreement negotiated by my predecessor has been three times rejected by this House. Its terms are unacceptable to this Parliament and to this country. No country that values its independence and indeed its self-respect could agree to a treaty which signed away our economic independence and self-government as this backstop does. And it's incredible that it had such lasting consequences, not just for the UK, but the way it's affected Ireland, the way it's affected uh, the rest of Europe. And a figure who appears in the book is Sir James Goldsmith. How influential and significant a figure do you think he is? Well, I think he's incredibly significant, if not often remembered these days. So Goldsmith was an Anglo-French billionaire who had been a donor for the Conservative Party. And he was someone, again, who was quite a pragmatic pro-European until the Maastricht Treaty was signed. And then he suddenly turns on the idea of European integration and becomes a very well-known figure in the British media and also in France. And he started a party called the UK Referendum Party, which gained no seats in the 1997 election in the UK, but managed to push each of the parties into a referendum pledge of some description. So this was the beginning of the road to Brexit. But he was also influential, I think, beyond the UK. He provided a new sort of Euroscepticism that politicians right the way across Europe, paid attention to and often mimicked. So we see it, for example, in the policies of Marine Le Pen in France uh, or Matteo Salvini in Italy. And although Goldsmith, you know, died in, in, the, in the late 1990s, he died, he still left uh, a remarkable legacy in, in terms of some of the things that continued on after his death. That's right. He died several weeks after the 1997 election which undoubtedly took its toll on his own health. But his way of talking about the European Union became very, very influential. So there had been Euroscepticism right from the very beginning of the European project. But he was among the first to warn about the idea that faceless technocrats in Brussels were building a kind of borderless Europe that would leave Europe very exposed to globalization. And that idea of borderless Europe that would lead to threats 
from outside became basically the political vernacular that we see some, from so many right-wing populists in the decades that followed. Now, some of the people who feature in the book are, you know, are expected names, for example, the Commission President Jacques Delors or the current President Ursula von der Leyen. But uh, there's also maybe some surprises, for example, uh, the CEO of Ryanair, Michael O'Leary. That's right. He features quite regularly in the book. And he's someone who I think embodied the possibilities of the EU single market, but also some of its downsides. So he was one of the great entrepreneurs um, of the last 30 years when it comes to European integration. He was uh, very influential in the idea of integration in the era of European airlines, in the budget airline revolution, and in his own way, quite contrary way, was a major figure of European integration by allowing a new generation of Europeans to take these quite cheap flights across borders. The problem was that he had his own bone to pick with the European Union. So he had regular rows with the European Commission over their rules on state aid and what that meant for the airports that Ryanair used. So he had a very fractious relationship with the European Union. He himself played a part in Ireland's second referendum campaign in support of the Lisbon Treaty, where he provided a very powerful pushback against Declan Ganley, who presented himself as the voice of Irish business. So I think uh, O'Leary is a fascinating character for the book because he embodies the possibilities of European integration, but also the tensions there. Why do you think the EU is so vulnerable to to right-wing populists? Because I think when you look at how they've been able to channel discontent uh, over quite a number of issues, the Euro, the Euro crisis, the, the global refugee crisis, even during uh, the pandemic, uh, they were very effective and they have been very effective in, I suppose, channeling all this unhappiness about globalisation, about how people are, are experiencing all of these changes. And, and they're able to, to redirect it through you know, misinformation and disinformation and by by, I suppose, using that anger for their own purposes. I think that's right. And the argument I make in the book is that the heads of state or government in the European Union find it so easy to cooperate, in part because they have this shared vision of globalization as something that's inevitable, something that can be managed and something that can be more or less beneficial in the long run. That's quite a simplistic, naive understanding of globalization that pays far too little attention to the downsides of global trade, something that would benefit businesses and consumers, but much less immediately uh, workers. So the fact that EU heads of state or government have that very simplistic understanding of globalization, I think creates this space for right-wing populists to channel discontent with globalization. But populism is known as a thin ideology, right? thin-centered ideology. It's not much interested in solutions. So someone like Sir James Goldsmith has a powerful critique of globalization, but he's not much interested in doing anything about it. So I think it's that tension between national leaders who were able to cooperate so closely together, but their failure to understand the downsides of that cooperation that creates this space for populism, which flourishes crisis to crisis. The EU also seems to have had a challenge defining its fundamental values or perhaps it it knows what it would like to have as its fundamental values but then it has challenges when you have say Viktor Orban in Hungary or uh, some other election results around Europe and when it comes to different issues or crises then it sometimes finds itself in a bit of a bind. The key turning point I highlight in the book is the Austrian election in 1999 which brought Jörg Haider's Freedom Party to power. So that was one of the first times a right-wing populist party had found itself in power. And that was a pivotal moment for the European Union, which initially took a very principled stance towards York Heider and Austria, and effectively silenced and distanced Austria from day-to-day decision-making in Brussels. And that was a powerful statement of the EU's fundamental values, but it quickly unraveled. A high-level group was commissioned to try and investigate what was happening in Austria, They accepted that this party had a track record of xenophobic language, but they encouraged the EU to stand down because they said its sanctions towards Austria were counterproductive. Now, EU leaders, having taken this principal stance, took this ladder to climb down very quickly. They wanted to de-escalate the situation, but that set the tone for what followed. So in the decades after that, we see the EU coming up with a charter of fundamental rights, a very powerful statement of the values that the EU stands for, but there's a real reluctance to enforce this. So we do see with Viktor Orban, who goes over the last 30 years from being a 
a young liberal champion of democracy in Hungary to a prime minister who's systematically undermining the rule of law. And the European Commission has consistently tried to call Orban to account, but heads of state or government have not wanted to back up that action. So we see a real disconnect in this period between the EU's commitment to its own values in law and its ability to enforce them. The book takes us all the way up to Russia's invasion of Ukraine in February 2022. And I'm just wondering how you think the EU has responded to that invasion. And and, and do you think this is an area where the EU has responded successfully or has it emphasised some of those tensions and challenges? Well, if we go back to 92, when the European Union was founded, this was the same time that the Yugoslav wars were taking place in Europe. The EU's response to this was divided, ineffective and tragic, given the ethnic cleansing that we saw in places like Bosnia-Herzegovina. If we fast forward to 2002, we see a much more united European Union. So it stands by Ukraine. It breaks new ground for its own foreign policy uh, by providing military assistance and a lot of economic aid to Ukraine and even talking about membership. So there's a much more coherent response from the European Union. Now, there's many actors involved in support for Ukraine, including the UK and the US. So this is not just a European story. The real question is whether or not the European Union will make good on its promise to offer Ukraine membership of the club. Now, that's a very, very difficult question for the European Union. On one level, the public pressure on the EU to offer the people of Ukraine hope through EU membership is very, very high. So probably later this year, we'll see EU heads of state or government open negotiations with Ukraine on membership. My expectation is that those talks won't go anywhere very quickly for a number of reasons. The EU is probably incapable of taking in a country at war and a country that's not a member of NATO. So it will probably wait on NATO to make up its mind. There's many other questions about the EU and Ukraine. It's very large agricultural sector, the fact that it's Europe's poorest economy. And the EU has form in the post-Maastricht period of promising membership and failing to deliver on it. And we see this most, most noticeably with Turkey, which opens negotiations with the European Union that go nowhere, that are suspended on several occasions. So I think this is a really interesting turning point for the European Union, where it's offering hope but it might not deliver on that hope ultimately. Well, it's a fascinating story and we will watch what happens in the months and years ahead with great interest, of course, here in Ireland and around Europe and the world. The book is called Circle of Stars, A History of the EU and the People Who Made It. The book is published in hardback by Yale University Press. The author is Dermot Hodson. And Dermot, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thanks, Patrick. Well, that does bring us to the end of another edition of Talking History. My thanks to my producer, Marisa Sullivan, and to Peter Malloy on sound. We've got more debate and discussion next week, so hope you can join us then. We've been Talking History. Good night.